welcome to the preaching ministry of the Agape Baptist Church in George, South Africa. Good morning, church. If you would, please turn in your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 2. 1 Timothy chapter 2. Welcome to all of our visitors. It's a joy to have you with us this morning. Um, Here at Agape, we preach through books of the Bible, just verse by verse. And so this is where we're at this morning in 1 Timothy chapter 2, finishing up our study on men and women in the church. Um, As a brief reminder, this letter was written by the Apostle Paul to his young younger co-worker in the faith, Timothy. Paul had urged Timothy to stay in Ephesus so that he could correct certain errors and teach on the proper function and duties of the congregation. In 1 Timothy 3, verses 14 through 15, uh, Paul gives us a summary of why he is writing to this church. And hopefully these words have become ingrained in us all. Paul says in verse 14, I hope to come to you soon. But I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. In chapter 1, we were presented the gospel of the glory of the blessed God. The good news that God has revealed himself through Christ Jesus, his son, who came into the world to save sinners. Paul charged Timothy to guard this gospel, proclaim this gospel, live out this gospel. In chapter 2, Paul begins giving specific instructions with which either correct certain errors in the Ephesian church or provide greater clarity on what practices are best and most glorifying to God. Last time, we began a two-part study In chapter 2, verses 8 through 15, on men and women in the church. In verses 8 through 10, we saw that men are called to pray with humility as spiritual leaders of the home and the church. And women were called to adorn or clothe themselves with godliness as they lift high the name of Jesus with everything they do. We went back to Genesis chapter 2. And saw the beauty of God's design of men and women as equal in worth, yet different. Designed to perfectly correspond to one another with their different roles. The helper leader, sorry, the leader helper relationship between men and women is not part of the curse of sin. Instead, this good relationship, just like every other good thing on earth, is now marred and distorted by sin. And in Timothy, Paul will point the Ephesian church to the way God desires men and women to interact with one another, all for the glory of God and for their good. With that in mind, let's read 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8-15 through 15 together. Paul says, I desire then that in every place the men should pray lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. 
And then our passage for this morning, beginning in verse 11, Paul says, Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. With this uh, passage in mind, let's go to the Lord in prayer, asking Him to help us to understand and receive His words. Let's pray. Father, I thank You for Your Word. I thank You that You have revealed Your wisdom to us. If You had not revealed it to us, then we would be destined to rely on the wisdom of men, the wisdom of humanity of this age. And Lord, so much beauty and health and good would be missed and lost. We would be as people who stumble about in the dark. Yeah, Father, I I do thank you for your word. And I pray that each one of us would value your word, would accept your word, would humble ourselves before the scriptures, and would receive with joy your wisdom. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. If you were not here with us two weeks ago, when we studied verses 8 through 10 together, I highly encourage you to go back and to listen to that sermon so that you can get the full context of what we are learning together as a church. But today, we will begin in verse 11 in the middle of Paul's instructions on men and women in the church. Paul says in verse 11, Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. As a reminder, the setting of Paul's instructions throughout this letter is clearly the church, which is not a building or a specific room like this one, but instead is the people of God who gather at certain times in certain places. The church is not brick and mortar. It's not one hour on Sunday morning. The church is actually the household or family of God. And in these verses, Paul is primarily addressing how men and women are to interact with one another when the family of God gathers. So when Paul says in verse 11 that women should learn quietly with all submissiveness, he has in mind a gathering of Christian men and women where the Word of God is about to be taught. The first thing to note is that women are called to learn. I know this is taken for granted in our day, but the Christian message elevated in a way rarely seen, um, elevated women in a way rarely seen since Adam and Eve's fall into sin. At the time of Paul's writing, women were seen as property. And few were allowed to receive formal training. Some of the Jewish teachers in Paul's time even forbid fathers from teaching their daughters the Torah or the Old Testament. This brings into perspective the radical nature of Jesus' teaching ministry to the masses. Men, women, and children were allowed to come and sit at his feet and hear the words of God taught with authority and clarity. Think of how incredible it was that Mary was allowed to sit at Jesus' feet along with his disciples and hear the Lord teach. 
Not only was she not condemned by the Lord, instead Jesus commended her for choosing the best thing, to know the wisdom of God, which would not be taken away from her. In 1 Peter 3, verse 7, women are again elevated when Peter says to husbands that they are to live with their wives in an understanding way, giving this reason. He says, they, women, are heirs with you of the grace of life. They are fellow heirs of salvation and eternal life in Christ Jesus. These words were then immediately followed with the warning that if Christian Husbands mistreat their wives, treating them like the world does as nothing but property, then God will see the evil of their deeds and will not hear their prayers to Him. The Christian message that men and women are both image bearers of God, equal in worth, both able to know and approach God, and co-heirs of heaven, this message has been and still is to this day a radical message among the different people groups around the world. Paul says in verse 11 that Christian women are to learn and know the wisdom of God, but in such a way that will bring honor and glory to God. Paul gives two ways women can do this. Women are to learn quietly, and this word in the Greek implies an inner calmness in the heart that results in a physical stillness that allows another to freely and clearly speak. Women are also called to learn with all submissiveness. This phrase describes a respectful way of conducting yourself that reveals a heart that longs to be led into the truth. A heart that desires for her husband to lead her by teaching her. A heart that longs for the pastors of the church to faithfully proclaim the word. To exhort, admonish, correct, and rebuke without apology. To learn quietly with all submissiveness is to willingly and joyfully submit yourself as a student to the one who is rightfully a teacher. Now, when you hear that description of learning quietly and learning in submissive and submission, it doesn't really sound all that different from what the Word teaches for men to do when another is teaching. That is what is expected of Christian men as well when they hear the Word of God taught. But verse 12 sheds more light on the specific prohibition that Paul is delivering. He goes on to say in verse 12, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. When Christian men and women gather, it is inappropriate for a woman to teach or lead men. This biblical instruction has come under so much attack in recent decades. So much so that many have practically removed it from God's instruction to the church. Without getting sidetracked by every form of errant teaching, I would like to affirm that this is without a doubt part of God's inspired words to His people. 
and that it is in complete agreement with the rest of Scripture. This is also not simply a cultural anomaly that we can now cast off, but is instead part of the beauty of God's original creation, which demonstrates the submission in the Trinity and displays the joy of being the bride of Christ. Looking back at verse 12, Paul first says it is not permitted for a woman to teach men. Again, putting this in context, Christian men are gathered together to hear the Word of God taught, and Paul says it is not permitted for a woman to teach men. The word translated teach is used 97 times in the New Testament and is primarily used to describe the teaching ministry of Jesus Christ. Think of Jesus teaching the disciples in private, teaching the crowds in public, teaching in the temple, teaching in the synagogues. Think of how He spoke with authority. Think about what He spoke, the words of God. Think of the majority of His hearers sitting at His feet, quiet and in submission, longing to hear the words of God taught clearly and powerfully. The word teach is also used to describe the ministry of the apostles who went out declaring the gospel with authority and wisdom, instructing the church on how to live for God. The word teach is also used to describe the primary duty of the pastors in the church. And when Paul is instructing Timothy and Titus to teach the word, he also uses other words which describe the authoritative stance of the teaching. He says to them, charge, urge, command, encourage, preach, declare, exhort, and rebuke with all authority. These words describe the teaching ministry of Jesus, the teaching ministry of the apostles, and the teaching ministry of the pastors of the church. And with this in mind, Paul is saying it is not permitted that a woman be a teacher of the Word of God to men. When Christian men and women gather, the woman is to willingly and joyfully remain a student of the Word. Paul next says that women are not permitted to exercise authority over a man. This phrase comes from one Greek word which means to exercise dominion, to rule, govern, or to have mastery over. This is not only describing the husband and wife relationship. Instead, this is describing the way God desires for men and women to interact with one another in His family, in the household of God. In context, it is clear that Paul is speaking about who has and who has not been given the responsibility to lead the church of God, to oversee, rule, and shepherd his family. God has has appointed it the responsibility of qualified men to lead the household of God. And God is saying through the Apostle Paul that it dishonors him when men shrink back from spiritual leadership and follow the teaching and leadership of women. Why? Why would Paul go here? Why can't everything just be exactly the same? Why can't we just all submit to one another and get along? Why make a tier of authority 
which a woman cannot biblically exercise. Paul begins his argument for this equal yet different relationship by going back to the creation. Pointing to Genesis 2, Paul says in verse 13, For Adam was formed first, then Eve. Just as we saw two weeks ago, there is significance in the order and the way that God created Adam and Eve. We saw in Genesis 2 that Adam was created first and alone. God appointed Adam the responsibility to work and keep the garden. But as Adam began his work tending the garden and naming the animals, God looked down and saw that it was not good that Adam should be alone. Instead, God would make him a helper, fit for or corresponding to him. God fashioned Eve, the first woman, to perfectly fit Adam, so that when they were knit together, they were more complete and whole than they ever would have been apart. It is clear from Genesis 2 that Eve was created different. And this was not a mistake on God's part. God intentionally created Eve different than Adam. She was not a man, she was a woman. It is also clear from Genesis 2 that Adam was in the place of primary authority in the relationship. He was created first. He was given responsibility and work to do, and then Eve was specifically created to help him in his God-given task. God also created Eve from a rib that he took out of Adam, showing that Eve came from Adam. There was not a separate and distinct act of creation. Eve came from Adam. Finally, Adam was given authority to name her. All those of her design were given the name woman. And the first woman, his wife, Adam named Eve. This order of events is no accident. God is not making decisions on the fly. This was his intent and purpose from the very beginning to show his glory and his beauty through the way that men and women relate to one another. In 1 Corinthians 11 verse 3, we are given a picture of the beauty of this God-ordained picture of authority and submission. It says in 1 Corinthians 11 verse 3, But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of the wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. In this passage, Paul is pointing the Corinthian believers to the beauty of God's way of assigning authority and submission. He is saying that Jesus Christ, who is God the Son, is in submission to the Father, to God the Father. Does that mean that God the Son, Jesus Christ, is less in value, power, intellect, or worth? No, never. We know that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are one. But this does mean that the Son willingly and joyfully fulfills His role in the Godhead, in the Trinity, as the Son who fulfills the will of His Father with great joy. 
to rebel against the Father or to seek to grasp the role of the Father for himself is completely alien to the submission of the Son, as is clearly seen throughout the four Gospels. God the Son, though equal in worth, power, and beauty, willingly and joyfully submits himself to the authority of God the Father. And in 1 Corinthians 11, we see that a wife is given the task of displaying the beauty of the Godhead, the beauty of Christ's submission to the Father by submitting herself to her husband. As as her husband submits himself to the headship of Christ. Authority and submission are not evils brought about by the fall. Otherwise, you would have to declare that there is wickedness in the Trinity and that God created evil when He fashioned Adam and Eve. Looking back at 1 Timothy, Paul has pointed us to Genesis 2 and the perfect leader-helper relationship as it once was. And now he will point us to Genesis 3 where Adam and Eve plunged the entire creation into the curse of sin. In 1 Timothy 2.14, Paul says of the fall, And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Paul is not saying that women are solely or even primarily responsible for humanity's fall into sin. He is not agreeing with Adam's words of excuse when he said to God, The woman who you gave me to be with me, she gave me the fruit and I ate, as if it was a legitimate excuse for his own rebellion. Paul is not saying that women are more gullible, easily deceived, prone, more prone to sin, or less intelligent. A general statement like that wouldn't be very accurate or helpful. In reality, both men and women can be found at every point on the spectrum of intellect and holiness. And as we saw last time, women are actually way more likely to fill churches and spend their lives in devotion to the God they love. Paul is not making a derogative statement about the way woman was created. The woman, Eve, he's not making that statement. After all, she was created perfect. She was perfect at the very point the devil tempted her. Perfectly designed to live and thrive within her God-given role. But there is the crucial point Paul is getting at. Eve was perfectly designed to live and thrive within her God-given role. And as, as the helper and follower of Adam. In Genesis 3, we see that the serpent did not come to the head, the leader, the protector of the home. Instead, the tempter bypassed Adam and directly tempted Eve. In Genesis 3, we read this. It says, The serpent said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, 
We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were open, and they knew that they were naked. As we've just read, a moment of friction, a moment of decision, crossed the path of this very first family. A tempter had entered their home and began to spread lies about God, saying, He doesn't really love you. If he really wanted what was best for you, then he would let you know everything he knows. In fact, God is holding back the best and most fulfilling thing from you. God doesn't really want what's best for you. This was a a battle for truth and for faithfulness. Lies had been spoken about God And Eve was being tempted to step outside the God-given protective umbrella of following her husband as her husband followed God. When Eve decides to step outside God's role for her, when she decides to reject following and embrace leading her husband, it's as if she steps out from under a God-given protection and is therefore deceived by the serpent into eating the fruit that God had forbidden. This is the point Paul is making. If a woman rejects God's way, which includes submission to God-given male leadership in the home and in the church, then she is walking out from under God-given protection and becomes vulnerable to the deceptive lies of the devil. A common image that describes this passage is that Eve, as she led her husband, was blinded and went into sin with her eyes closed. She was deceived. But Adam, as he relinquished his duty to lead and followed his wife, his eyes were open. Adam was not deceived, as this passage says. He saw the danger, the rebellion, the threat of death. But the potential reward of being like God and his desire to please his wife drove him to abandon his role of following God and leading his wife. When God was about to announce the curse on Adam, he first gave the reason for the curse. God said, You, Adam, have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree, of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Adam chose to follow and please his wife rather than follow and please God. 
What would it have looked like if Adam had followed God and led his wife? Yes, she had already rebelled. She had rejected submission and eaten the fruit. But what would have happened if instead Adam had said, Eve, do not rebel against the Creator. He is loving and kind. He is good and caring. He has not withheld any good thing from us. Come, let's run to Him. Let's cry out to Him. Surely He will hear the cries of His children. Surely He will make a way. And if death is the only way to pay for sin, then I will pay the price. I will purchase you with my life. Is this not what Jesus, the second yet perfect Adam, has done for His beloved? For His bride, the church? Christ Jesus did not give in to the devil's temptation to reach out and rip from God the Father what was not His. Instead, He remained submissive and humble before the Father. And Christ Jesus did not follow His bride into sin. Instead, He truly loved her by leading her, serving her, and dying for her. Husbands, you are not loving your wife if you are not leading her and following Christ. The world would have you think that the most loving thing you can do is to never expect your wife to change, but instead to be always ready with a yes, dear. In the same way, Male church leaders are not loving the women in the church if they shrink back from their responsibility to be the teachers and leaders of the church and instead push women forward into positions of authority that God has not called them to. The world may say we are chauvinists, sexists, bigots, and unloving. But if we reject this teaching because the world has labeled it foolishness, then we might as well reject the preaching of the cross. Because in 1 Corinthians 1 we read, For the word of the cross is folly or foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved by it, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? And then in verse 25, it says, For the foolishness of God is wiser than men. And the weakness of God is stronger than men. Brothers and sisters, do not be surprised when the world labels any part of the Christian faith as foolish. If the very centerpiece of our faith is foolishness to the world, then do not waver in your faith because they scoff at a particular application of it. In 1 Timothy 2, verses 11-14, through 14, Paul has confirmed God's pattern for teaching and leading the household of God. His intent was most likely to rebuke some women in Ephesus who were just casting off all submission 
to God-given authority, as well as rebuking certain men who were happy to sit back and watch others serve. But in verse 15, Paul switches gears and concludes this section on men and women in the church with a word of encouragement, specifically to women. Words that point to the hope, joy, and beauty of God's way. Now, I'll be honest with you. Verse 15 is definitely a difficult verse to understand. But I do believe it is clear that Paul is focusing on the beauty of God's way for women. And I will suggest two possible interpretations of of this verse that are most plausible. Verse 14 ends with the words, But Eve was deceived and became a transgressor. And then in verse 15 we read these words, Yet she will be saved through childbearing, if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. From the very beginning, let's be clear that women are not eternally saved from the wrath of God by bearing children. To teach that position is heretical, and does damage to the family of God, especially believing women. Scripture is repeatedly clear clear that men and women are both saved by grace, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Our salvation is not by works, because then we would have a reason to boast in our own righteousness. Instead, God has ordained that all who are His will be saved through the righteousness and death of Christ alone. So why would Paul use the words saved through childbearing? For the sake of time, I will not go through all the differing opinions. There are are many of them. But I will briefly discuss two views that I found to be most compelling and um, expressions of of the beauty of God's way. First, Paul could be using a play on words to describe the coming of the Messiah through a woman bearing a child. When verse 14 ends with the pronouncement that Eve became a transgressor, it alludes to the curse that fell upon Eve. In Genesis 3, 15 and 16, we read part of the curse on the serpent and the curse on the woman. Speaking to the serpent, God says this, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing, in pain you shall bring forth children. Even though the pain and childbearing was part of woman's curse, through this pain, the Messiah would be born, who would save both the man and the woman from eternal death if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. This view shows the beauty of God's way through depicting God as the one who provides the way to save His people from their sins, even in the midst of the rebellion and the curse in the garden. A second possibility is that Paul is using the word save in a more general sense 
and does not intend to imply eternal salvation from the wrath of God. This happens many other places in Scripture where the word saved is used generally. In this view, women in general will be saved, protected, or preserved from repeating Eve's sin and becoming a transgressor like her, like in her rebellion, if they rejoice in the way God designed them, in the way God intended for them to be a blessing to their own homes and communities by bearing children, caring for their own homes, submitting to their own husbands, and rejoicing in the opportunity to picture the beauty of how Christ Jesus willingly submitted Himself to the will of God the Father. No matter which view is most convincing to you, both are true. God did provide the way to save His people from their sins, even in the midst of the rebellion and the fall. And women will be most satisfied, most God-honoring, most fulfilled in this life when they rejoice in the way God designed them and live in submission to His way. I'm out of time this morning. But in our follow-up discussion after the tea, we're going to focus on some practical ways that both men and women in our church can rejoice in our differences and in the way God has gifted each and every one of us. Let's pray together. Father, again, I thank You for Your Word. Lord, I pray that as each one of us think on these words, as each one of us wrestle with the text and with the truth that is there, that we would humble ourselves before the Scriptures and that we would seek to know and understand and live according to Your Word, Your wisdom. Lord, would You increase our unity Would You increase our love and our devotion to You and one another? Father, would no one in this church despise another, whether they are male or female, rich or poor, black or white, of our culture or not? Lord, each one of us is created in the image, in Your image. Each one of us is equal in worth before You. And I pray, Father, that we would live in such a way that the world looks from the outside in, looking into this church, and they see the beauty of Your way. They may not be able to understand it completely or even point at what it is that's so beautiful, but that Your way would be evident and clear to the lost world around us And Father, that as we live for You, we would grow together in our joy and our love for Christ our Savior and God the Father and God the Holy Spirit who has come into this world to save sinners and to save a bride for Jesus Christ. It's in His name we pray. Amen.